I don't know what happened to you all when you called on the name of the Lord and were saved. But I can tell you what happened with me. I know that I received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And how do I know? I've told you often that when Aaron and I moved up to the mountains and came back to the church, that reading the Bible did not make any sense. Well, the Bible didn't make any sense to me. Reading the Bible made sense. But the Bible, I had a hard time understanding it. And yet... When I became a Christian, when I was baptized, when I called on the name of the Lord, suddenly, the Bible made sense. A lot of things made sense. But the Bible, especially the minute, almost, that I became a Christian, the Bible was intelligible to me. There was no rushing wind when I became a Christian. There was no tongue alighting on me like a flame of fire. I did not speak in tongues. I was just as as unintelligible as before. What can I say? So what changed in my life? The answer is simple. I changed. I changed in every way you could imagine. I had a zeal for the word of God. But what's more... Uh, What was hard uh, for me to understand in Scripture was opened up to me. It simply made sense. Now, I would not be surprised if that was the experience of others here today. Uh, Nothing fancy, just a quiet understanding of things not previously seen, made possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, in our Scripture passage for today, and we're going to dig a hunk of it, we've been working through maybe three or four verses a week, and we're going to cover ten today. But what is, we're going Acts 8, 14 through 24, but my opening question is, what is the meaning of verses 15 and 16? Because the Samaritans, as we saw before, have responded, responded to the teaching of Philip and had become Christians. They had been baptized And yet, it says here, the Holy Spirit had not descended on them yet. So, what gives? How can this possibly be? To understand this, let's first read the entire passage. And that's Acts 8, 14 through 24. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon, the magician, saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. 
Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, we know that uh, from our previous studies that when Saul of Tarsus, as he was known, then began imprisoning Christians in Jerusalem, many of the Hellenistic Christians left the city for the Judean countryside and for Samaria, which was the hated region just north of Judea. Philip, who we know as the evangelist, went to Samaria and proclaimed Jesus Christ as Messiah, and many in Samaria believed. We saw that the that he baptized those who believed, including Simon the magician. It says that Simon himself believed and was baptized. Now we know that relations between Samaritans and the Jews of Judea were not good. And they had not been good for some time, like a thousand years. They had been on the outs with each other. The Samaritans were looked down on by Jews and uh, not without reason. They were half-breed Jews, both in paternity and in a religious sense. They were not full-bred Jews in either respect. They had even rejected Jesus on his final journey to Jerusalem, not having him stay with them on their uh, trip in. And Jesus himself had advised his disciples to steer clear of the Samaritans. They, in turn, the Samaritans, hated the Jews, and especially the city of Jerusalem, which they saw as a source of their rejection by the Jews of Judea. And yet, here's Philip. Philip goes down, preaching Christ, and a revival broke out. Okay? They rejoiced in the city. It says, the city of Samaria is probably a city of Samaria, because the uh, city of Samaria had long since been abandoned and rebuilt and named something different, but a revival broke out. So why? What was going on? Well, it's probable that the Samaritans were more sympathetic, more open to the preaching of Philip than they would have been even to the apostles themselves. The Samaritans, they had previously rejected the apostles when they were known as disciples of Jesus, but Philip, as a Hellenistic Jew slash Christian, was an outcast among Hebrew Jews himself. We'll remember that the seven were appointed to take care of the Hellenistic Jews, uh, Jewish widows, because they were being neglected by the distribution of food and money in Jerusalem. So the Hellenistic Jews were also second-class Jews to the Hebrew mindset. And so they were outcasts among Hebrew Jews, just as the Samaritans themselves were. Verse 14 says, Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, and let's stop right there. 
the apostles in Jerusalem, St. Peter and John, who, who we recognize as the leading apostles today, but whom I also suspect at the time, were seen as the leading apostles in Jerusalem. John was known as the one who Jesus loved. Peter was the fiery apostle who tried to defend Jesus with a sword at the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were the two best well-known apostles. But they did not go to Samaria to check on Philip's work like a lot of people think. That's not why they went down. Remember that, that news did not travel fast. News traveled slow and probably to a certain extent incompletely. They heard in Jerusalem about the work of Philip in Samaria and they decided to see what exactly was going on. Now they did not go to Samaria, as I said, to check on Philip's work because they trusted Philip completely, remembering, of course, that he was one of the seven chosen by the Hellenistic faction of the church to take care of the Greek-speaking widows. The apostles had laid hands on him and had ordained him for that work so that their trust was total. Verses 15 through 16, which I mentioned at the beginning, clarifies why Peter and John went down to Samaria. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So why did the apostles have to pray that the Samaritans would receive the Holy Spirit? Today, a Christian receives the Holy Spirit upon belief in Jesus. Why was this different for the Samaritans? Well, one must first remember that the first sign of a believer being filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which was recent memory to everybody, uh, was speaking in tongues called glossolalia. Uh, that's easy for me to say. We'll try it again. Glossolalia, okay? It is believed that 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 is what is being talked about here with the the Holy Spirit not falling on the Samaritans. They did not speak in tongues is what people assume that it means, though it does not say that here. They did not receive the gift of tongues up to that point, the identifying mark of a believing Christian at the beginning of the church age. Were the Samaritans really Christians at all would be the question. But you'll notice that Peter and John did not go down and question it. They did not go down and rebaptize these Samaritans. Uh, it doesn't even say that they went back and re-preached to them. Instead, they prayed that the Samaritan Christians would receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17 says, um, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So why was this step necessary? And there's a deeper meaning to this than just, just the apostles blessing the ministry of Philip. 
Consider this the Lord's providence for his young church. See, instead of a work of the Spirit springing up apart from the apostles and the church, the Lord made it necessary for the completion of their conversion to be accomplished through the apostles. Remember who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with the Samaritans. The Samaritans set up a competing Judaism against Hebrew Jews. They had their own temple on their own mountain. They had their own priests, and it was a pseudo-Judaism. Now, Philip goes down to Samaria, and he preaches to the Samaritans, and they convert. If it stopped there, we might very well have had a competing Christianity. We would have had the the Hebrew Christians in Jerusalem, and we would have had the Samaritan Christians in Samaria. But instead of that, what we have is we have the sign of the infilling of the Spirit as being glossolalia, the gift of tongues, and that was not given to the Samaritans through Philip. Instead, the very Hebrew apostles John and Peter came down, blessed them, and they received that filling of the Holy Spirit. If it had been done any other way, Christian unity would have been shattered at its very beginning. Instead, the Samaritans saw God's awesome gift coming through the apostles and the Hebrew Christians. One thousand years of a Samaritan-Hebrew schism was bridged in a moment. Now, of course, man is always able to take the wonderful workings of God and twist them in a way that God did not intend. This passage here is used by Catholics and others in the uh, pedo-baptism world, the child-baptism world, to justify unbiblical teaching. They say, see, the biblical model is belief, baptism, and confirmation. Okay? This church here practices confirmation. I had friends who were Lutherans, not our church, this, this church. I had friends who were Lutheran, and they took confirmation class, and it was a very serious class. Uh, I'm not saying it was lightly taken at all. It was taken extremely seriously by those wanting to be confirmed in the Lutheran church. But by going by that model, the baptism has to be confirmed by the church. Therefore, you can baptize infants, admit them into the church as members, and then later confirm that that baptism was valid. However, in their zeal to baptize infants, they gloss over that in this case, and it was a special case, it is not baptism first. It is belief first. They believed what Philip was preaching. Then baptism, then Philip baptized them. And later on, there was a laying on of apostolic hands which was no confirmation at all because the apostles accepted Philip's baptism of the Samaritans 
One other thing, you know, bat, uh, uh, child baptism is baptized first, then belief comes later, and then confirmation. But talk about taking the wrong message from these events. Verse 18 then tells us about, we get back to our friend Simon, either the sorcerer or the magician, whichever you want to call him. We get back to Simon in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money. Simon, some of my commentators said, saw Philip and John as fellow magicians. That's what he saw. And when he, albeit better magicians than Simon was, but Simon was a very good magician, it says in Scripture. A magician could buy magic tricks from other magicians. This is what Simon was offering to do. He was offering to buy Peter and John's trick. And along with buying a trick, when you buy it from another magician, if you buy somebody's own developed trick, you're allowed to make money off that trick. If you buy it from them, you are then allowed, and that's today, but I'm assuming it goes back down through the millennia. If you buy their trick, you're allowed to make money off of it. And this is what Simon saw the bestowing of the Holy Spirit as being a way to make money. This told the apostles two things about Simon. He thought God's power was no more than a parlor trick. And two, since since he didn't believe in the power of God, he therefore didn't truly believe in God himself. His conversion and therefore his baptism were not the acts of faith. His actions showed that he was not a believer. Verse 19 has Simon saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So he offers to buy the power of bestowing the Holy Spirit on people, whoever he wanted, as though that was what the apostles were doing. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a commodity. He is not a thing to be purchased. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is God. Do you think that even had John and Peter sold Simon, sold rights to Samaria to distribute the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would have gone along with it? I think not. I think that there might be another think think coming to them. One does not pour out the Spirit on just anyone you want to, but instead the Holy Spirit directs his outpouring, in this case through Peter and John. Not by Peter and John, but through his direction of their actions. The Holy Spirit, as I said, is not a commodity to be bought and sold, and he is certainly not a magic trick. Verse 20 says, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And this is just another in a long line of things that I tell you, I wish the translations were better. This is not 
really what Peter said. Aaron was reminding me at the dinner table last night of something that Pastor Allen said in one of his sermons that a pastor once used a really accurate translation of the Bible and preached a message and afterwards a man came up and poked him in the chest and says, you can't use that language in front of my wife and children. Okay? Because this is not what what Five out of five of my recent and very conservative commentators said the exact same thing. This is not what Peter said here. The closest version said, to perdition with you and your money. But what that means is, in common translation, to hell with your, you and your money is the actual thing that Peter said to him. It was not may your may your silver perish with you sounds a lot too polite for this, okay? For what Simon was trying to to do here. But like I say, I often wish that uh, that our translations were as earthy. I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm talking about what God has directed to be put in His book and saying, "Wow, you know." I don't mean that in a bad way. The disciples were earthy. There are just... We try to prettify. That's a, that's a verb. We try to prettify the word of God. We try to make it acceptable to our ears. But that wasn't what was being said by the apostles to the magician. To show you that that's exactly what Peter meant, he continues in verse 21. He says, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Now, this is the most terrifying words that really can be said to anyone, not just to Simon. I would be terrified if Peter said that to me. me. He says, you have no part or lot in Christianity. You are not a Christian. You do not belong to Jesus. Your baptism is invalid. F.F. Bruce says that um, to be baptized into Jesus' name, after all, uses the terminology of a common business transaction. As I tell you always, I am always so... The ancient world was just like us. And they had business terms. And they had legalese. And if something... If a property was transferred or paid into the name of someone, it's just like us writing on a check or a cashier's check, paid to the order of. We use the same terminology today. To transfer the property, to be paid into the name of someone, makes it that person's property. Someone baptized into the name of Jesus, therefore, and this is really important, therefore becomes the property of Jesus Christ. He is their Lord and their Master. If you've been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, that is 
what you have said through that, and I'll use the word, it sounds greedy, transaction. You have called upon the name of the Lord and been baptized, and you have sold yourself to Him, lock, stock, and barrel. But not Simon. According to Peter, he has no part in Jesus. In verse 22, Peter goes straight to the heart of the matter. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. It is not just the sin of trying to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit, but the intent of the heart here. Notice that Peter says that Simon should pray that if possible. Now think about that. Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of the people who crucified him. That wasn't unforgivable. He prayed anything that you ask forgiveness for can be forgiven. What the unforgivable sin truly is is not asking for forgiveness. If you do not ask for forgiveness, you will not be forgiven and you cannot be forgiven. Peter says, if possible, Simon should pray that the intent of his heart would be forgiven. But the next verse shows that he knows where Simon's heart is and that he would never be forgiven. Verse 23 says, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And and, uh, commentators say that a better translation is that you are in gall of bitterness. And that Peter sees Simon's ultimate fate is consignment to hell. That he is not going to be anything but bitter in this life. Does Simon commit the unpardonable sin? The sin you won't repent of? Verse 24 says, And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you say said may come upon me. It sounds contrite that he asks Peter to pray that none of what Peter has prophesied would come to pass. But he will not pray himself. He will not repent. He does not do that. In fact, some say that it was a dismissive attitude towards Peter. No, I won't pray. You pray. You pray that this won't happen to me. And verse 25 concludes, Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And you know that little things like that tickle me, so I had to look up and to see how many towns and cities there were in Samaria. Okay, I tell you that the, the dearth of information, even on the internet, bothers me sometimes. I can tell you how many cities and towns are around Samaria, Wisconsin. Okay. I can tell you how many are around Samaria, Indiana, or Samaria, New York, or Samaria, West Virginia. But they didn't actually tell me, so I found the best map of biblical Samaria, and I counted the towns. And there's about 50. So think about that. Philip's been there evangelizing. And it says that 
they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Based on scripture between Peter and John and Philip, a goodly portion, I would think, of Samaria was preached to personally by these men. We don't know it for certain. Like I say, I just counted the little towns. How many baptisms resulted from Peter and John's missionary outreach is not known. But it's safe to reason that with Philip's revival ongoing, the church expanded greatly among the Samaritans. So, once again, proving the truism that any scripture can be taken out of context to prove any unbiblical practice among various sects, it's not just Catholics and other uh, paedo-baptists that latch on to this passage to further their own ends. Uh, Pentecostals and others who believe that a speaking in tongues is the sole defining walk of a true Christian also hang their beliefs upon this passage. The Samaritans believed and were baptized, but it took the apostles laying on of hands to fill them with the Holy Spirit. And if you know about the Pentecostal movement, they believe that Christians must speak in tongues. Now, first, we're only supposing that tongues is what is meant by the Holy Spirit falling on the Samaritans here. It does not say that explicitly. I will give you the point that that's probably what was meant. But it's also very possible that something else, maybe even simply my experience of Scripture suddenly becoming clear, or the preaching of the Word becoming clear, is being spoken of here. But it is of note to know that the gift of tongues is only mentioned in two books in the New Testament, okay? It's mentioned here, in Acts. And it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians, book, uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14, where Paul tries to explain the proper use of the gift of tongues, what it is and what it isn't. And how it's to be used within the context of the church. This explanation also comes that Paul gives at the beginning of the church age. I, as we were speaking about John MacArthur earlier, I, along with John MacArthur, and I always like saying things like that, John MacArthur agrees with me that that the gift of tongues died out. Not that it supernaturally can't be given for the advance of the gospel and for the preaching of his word. I'm sure it can be. But the gift of tongues, as known by the Pentecostals, died out with the apostles. For Christians, after the founding of the church, after the miracles of Pentecost, that that were the affirmation of God's working through his chosen instruments, the apostles and the church, be clear, the workings of the Holy Spirit are internal in believers for the external glory and furthering of God's kingdom. Meaning, the Holy Spirit is working inside of us. Jesus himself said in John 14, 16 through 17, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him 
nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, dwells both with you and in you. The Apostle Paul, writing to Titus, a Gentile Gentile believer, Gentile Christian, explains further that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is for our regeneration and renewal for our good works in the kingdom. And in 1 Corinthians, and this is in chapter 6, Paul explains exactly what the Holy Spirit means in the life of a Christian. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. And knowing how the Jews revered the temple, even the fallen temple that Herod had built, even the the fallen temple that Solomon had built, but knowing that the Holy Spirit is inside of us and we are the body of the temple of the Holy Spirit. Despite what Simon the Sorcerer thought, this is not some cheap magic trick or even some expensive magic trick. This is instead the whole purpose of God calling us to be his holy people, to be a living temple of the Holy Spirit, to glorify God with our bodies and with all we have for his kingdom. Let's close in prayer.